Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. We're talking about George Moore, Hail and Farewell, Introduction, um, Art Without the Artists, Predictions, is George going to entertain us? Please, please, please. Can we see some art from the movement described? And can we judge a book by its intro? Intro was a bit dry, a lot of name dropping, um, but it's an intro, you know, when are intros ever entertaining? Techrific, good to see you, Techrific, glad you're glad to have you back. Taking your questions in order, it depends on your own definition of what you find entertaining. Well, of course. Uh, I think this will be challenging and hopefully stimulating. We are not the intended audience for this book, and I suspect many of the references will swoosh over our heads, even though we're all quite well read. Depending on interests, we can take a deep dive and try to recover lost knowledge that were common at the time of publication, but that takes time and effort. I'll try to set my expectations at the level that my time will allow, and I will deep dive when my curiosity and interest is sparked. Very cool. Well, that's a great answer, really. Like, um, yeah, I, I kind of get the same sense. Like, with a lot of these books, the the more you dive into it and pick it apart, the actually the better the reading experience is. The better the book is. Whoops! Oh, nearly just dropped a baby. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Not really. Uh, just being a little bit dramatic. I do have a sleeping baby in my arms, so. Um, yeah, but also the more arduous it is to do that, to deep dive into every name that's dropped and every reference that comes our way. So I think we'll let a bit of it wash over our heads and take some liberties there. But, you know, I've made a start by doing things like saying, can we see some of the art from the period they've mentioned? Um... And that's just, that's just at least get in the setting, you know. I might not investigate every artist that's mentioned, but at least paint a picture. Techrific also said, The sun blares, the wind blows from the east, the sky is bereft of cloud, and without, all is of iron. The windows of the Crystal Palace are seen from all points of London. The holiday maker rejoices in the glorious day and the painter turns aside to shut his eyes. This little passage packs a whopping punch to a conflict that still exists today. You can also find references to it at the end of Dostoevsky's note from underground. Prince Albert's Crystal Palace World Fair in 1851 became a symbol for the conflict between the romantic ideals preceding it and the idea of rationality, modernity and realism. The naturalist, part of the romantics also reacted against this newfound rationalism and the rapid industrialization of society that was taking place. They feared that humanity was becoming machine-like and inhuman. We can see in the passage above that the painter rejects the crystal palace modernity by shutting his eyes. This chasm in culture, art and literature that has divided many artists and their works into these two distinct camps is still an ongoing thing, although not talking about as much any more than by the closest mourners, as we say in Swedish. In the works 
of, for instance, Dostoevsky, Yeats and J.R.R. Tolkien, we have the romantic perspective in the case of poets such as Yeats, Keats and others. They tried to hold on to a view of the world that was increasingly seen as old-fashioned and useless in the progress of humanity. So I hope that that sets the stage a bit of what stakes actually are for the people involved. Two very different perspectives on the world and humanity's place in it, art for art's sake or no art at all. Um, well, thank you, Tech, for setting the stage so brilliantly. The Crystal Palace is a great metaphor, and, well, I mean, it wasn't even a metaphor, it was literally a crystal, well, maybe not literally crystal, but you know what I mean, it was a real thing. But symbolically, you know, even today, you look at the more modern, uh, like... It, you know what it comes to mind like a uh, an office building. It looks like a crystal palace, right? And it's so clean to every corner of that place. It's so functional and usually very high tech, full of art for art's sake, um, or for decorative purposes, I should probably say. Uh, it's from the floor to the top like almost a perfect structure but it you would not want you don't want to be there you know it's not a nice place to be it lacks humanness and um i don't know that's why that's what kind of comes to my mind at least i might be completely missing the mark but um yeah swim is back good to see you swim got some commentary about George Moore, 1852 till 1933, and his introduction to Hail and Farewell that may be illuminating. George was an Irish writer, poet, and dramatist who is credited for being the leading influence on naturalism in England and Irish writing during the late 19th century. This certainly explains the heavy emphasis on nature in his introduction. The internet tells us that naturalism was a literary movement taking place from 1865 to 1900, they used detailed realism to suggest that social conditions, heredity and environment had inescapable force in shaping human character. Naturalistic writers were influenced by the evolution theory of Darwin. As we learned from the Book of Verse, the Pre-Raphaelites were a group of artists in the Victorian era. They believed art should be as similar to the real world as possible. John Ruskin was one of the great Victorians. His range of interests and achievements were quite staggering. He was an artist, art critic, amateur geologist, teacher, writer, social critic and philosopher. As an art critic, Ruskin championed the idea of truth to nature, which encouraged painters to closely observe the landscape and in doing so capture the natural world as truthfully as possible, not romanticising what they saw. George started out aspiring to be a painter and studied in Paris as a young man, which explains his inclusion of so many artists in this intro. He certainly does a lot of name-dropping. A lot of these guys were poets we read in Book of Verse as well. George, George talks a lot about James McNeil, Whistler, the painter, and quotes him extensively. Whistler was an American-born but lived in Europe and was a proponent of realism in painting. He was also attracted by the pre-Raphaelite movement. He became known for his nocturne paintings of London, which explains George's nocturne comments. I think I've, I think I know this whistle guy. He was I mean I do know that he was very famous. But his paintings I feel like 
Did he do the seascapes? Let me have a little Google here. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of someone else. Was there a whistler that drew, that, or drew, that painted, like, boats on the harbour and things like that? Um, the succeeding paragraphs about various people and books via VOV Nature's role just perplexed me. Maybe it will become clearer from reading the actual book. Various sources on the internet say that it is an entertaining book. Encyclopedia Britannica had this to say, The real fruits of Moore's life in Ireland, however, came with the trilogy, Hail and Farewell. Discursive, affectionate, and satirical by turns, it reads like a sustained monologue that is both a carefully studied piece of self-revelation and an acute, though not always reliable, portrait gallery of his Irish acquaintance, which includes Yeats, A.E., and Lady Gregory. Above all, it is a perfectly modulated display of the comic spirit. How do you say that? A.E. I know I'm not. It's like A.A.S.O.P. A.E. A.E. Like it's conjoined. I don't even know how to say that. Here's some artworks. Okay, I'm just going to click on these. We've got Holman Hunt, Whistler, Everett Millais, and Dante, Gabriel Rossetti. Oh, Rossetti, yeah. Um, okay, so Rossetti, what do we got here? Um, okay. They look fairly modern. Oh, oh yeah, it's a strange mix of modern and classical. They look, oh, they're interesting. Colours are interesting. I, don't, I can't explain those paintings, actually. They're odd. Mandala, oh, okay, I'm getting an advertisement here, close that, most famous paintings, ah, Ophelia by, that woman in the stream, like floating down the stream, it's from, uh, what's it from, Hamlet, yeah, Ophelia, um, I've seen that painting, Oh, and the little boy from the soap ad. <laughs> you know, the boy with the frilly neck thing sitting on a rock. I'm pretty sure it was used in a soap ad. <laughs> oh, there we go. What's that one called? Bubbles. Um, cool. There's some familiar ones. Some dark Jesus-y ones by Holman. Oh, that very American one. Whistler. He drew that lady, the nun, sort of staring at a wall. <laughs> Nocturne, blue and silver. Okay. All right. Cool, 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 cool. All right. This is probably boring listening to me explain paintings, but I'm getting a feel for it. The Chevalier says, oh my God, we're finally done with verse. I had to drop out for a while. All good. I'm glad you're back. Welcome back. Um, hopefully this is a good book and we can smash through it. Overture. Oh my god, the overture goes for about a year. Okay, let's read an overture. Overture of Ave, Ave, Ave. So, book one. Overture. In 1894, Edward Martin and I were living in the temple. I in a garret in King's Bench Walk, he in a garret in Pump Court. At the time I was very poor and had to work for my living. All the hours of the day were spent writing some chapter of Easter Waters or of modern painting, and after dinner I often returned to my work, but towards midnight a wish to go out to speak to somebody would come upon me. Edward, 
returned about that time from his club, and I used to go to Pump Court, sure of finding him seated in his high, canonical chair, sheltered by a screen, reading his book, his glass of grog beside him, his long clay pipe in his hand, and we used to talk literature and drama until two or three in the morning. I wish I knew enough Irish to write my plays in Irish, he said one night, speaking out of himself suddenly. You'd like to write your plays in Irish, I exclaimed. I thought nobody did anything in Irish except bring turf from the bog and say prayers. Edward did not answer, and when I pressed him, he said, You've always lived in France and England and have forgotten Ireland. (coughs) Excuse me. You're wrong. I remember the boatmen speaking to each other in Irish and low Cara and Father James Brown preaching in Irish, and Cara Nakun, but I've never heard of anybody wanting to write in it, and plays too. Everything is different now, a new literature is springing up. In Irish, I said, and my brain fluttered with ideas regarding the relation of the poem to the language in which it is born. A new language to enwomb new thoughts, I cried out to Edward. On the subject of nationality in art, one can talk a long while, and it was past one o'clock when I groped my way down the rough timbered staircase lit by dusty lanterns and wandered from pump court into the closeter, loitering by the wigmaker's shop in the dim corner, so like what London must have been once some hundreds of years after the Templars. On my way back to King's Bench Walk, I passed their church, and standing before the caravan carven porch, I thought what a happy accident it was that Edward Martin and myself had drifted into the temple, the last vestige of old London combining, as someone has said, the silence of the cloister and the license of the brothel. Edward attracted by the church of the Templar's eye by a fleeting mistress, so it pleased me to think. One is making for the southern gate, hoping that the aged porter will pull the string and let her pass out without molesting her with observations, and when the door closed behind her there seemed to be nothing in the temple but silence, moonlight, and a round moon sailing westward let fall a cold ray along the muddy foreshore and along the river, revealing some barges moored in midstream. The tide is out, I said, and I wondered at the spots and gleams of lights amid the shrubs in the garden till I began to wonder at my own wonderment for after all this was not the first time the moon had sailed over Lambeth. Even so, the spectacle of the moonlit gardens and the river excited me to the point of making me forget my bed, and watching the white torch of Jupiter and the red ember of Mars, I began to think of the soul which Edward Martin had told me I had lost in Paris and in London, and, if it were true, that whoever casts off tradition is like a tree transplanted into uncongenial soil, Turgenev was of that opinion. Russia can do without any one of us, but none of us can do without Russia. Uh, One of his sentimental homilies, grown wearisome from constant repetition, true perhaps of Russia, but utterly untrue of Ireland. Far more true would it be to say that an Irishman must fly from Ireland if he would be himself, Englishmen, Scotchmen, Jews, do well in Ireland. Irishmen never, even the patriot, has to leave Ireland to get a hearing. We must leave Ireland, and I did well to listen to Montmartre. All the same, a remembrance of Edward Martin's conversation could not be stifled. Had I not myself written only half-conscious of the truth, 
that art must be parochial in the beginning to become cosmopolitan in the end, and isn't a great deal of the savour of a poem owing to the language in which it is written? If Dante had continued his comedy in Latin, he wrote two cantos in Latin, or was it two stanzas? So Ireland is waking, is awake, is awaking at last out of a great sleep of Catholicism. And I walked about the King's Bench walk, thinking what a wonderful thing it would be to write a book in a new language, or in an old language, revived and sharpened to literary usage for the first time. We men of letters are always sad when we hear of a mode of literary expression not available to us, or a subject we cannot treat. After discussing the Humbert case for some time, <coughs> Dujarin and a friend fell to talking of what a wonderful subject it would have been for Belzac, and I listened to them in sad silence. More is sad, Dujarin said, he is always sad when he hears a subject which he may never hope to write. The Humbert case being involved in such a mass of French jurisprudence that, and they laughed at me. But in the temple... In Edward's rooms I had heard that a new literature was springing up in my own parish, and forthwith began to doubt if the liberty of my father's death had given me was unmixed blessing. The talent I brought into the world might have produced rarer fruit if it had been cultivated less less sedulously. Ball and robe and all the nouvelle Athens, which... The bitterness of my meditation was relieved somewhat on remembering that those who had remained in Ireland had written nothing of any worth, miserable stuff, no narrative of any seriousness, only broad farce, lever and lover, and a rudiment, a peasant whose works I had once looked into, and whose name it was impossible to remember. Strange that Ireland should have produced so little literature. For there is a pathos in Ireland, in its people, in its landscape, and in its ruins, and that night I roamed in imagination from castle to castle, following them from hillside to hillside, along the edges of the lake, going up a staircase built between the thickness of the walls and on the ramparts, remembering that Castle Cara must have been a great place some four or five hundred years ago. Only the centre of the castle remains, the headland is covered with ruins, overgrown with thorn and hazel, but great men must have gone forth from Castle Carra and Castle Island, and Castle Hag were defended with battle-axe and sword, and these were wielded as tremendously from island to island, and along the shores of my lake, as ever they were under the walls of Troy. But of what use are such deeds if there be no chroniclers to relate them? Heroes are dependent upon chroniclers, and Ireland never produced any, only a few rather foolish bards. No one who could rank with Frosart, and I thought of my friend, up in Pump Court, writing by a window deep-set in a castle wall a history of his times. That was just the sort of thing he might do, and do very well, for he is painstaking. An heroic tale of robbers issuing from the keep of Castle Cara and returning with cattle and a beautiful woman would be more than he could accomplish. I heard, had heard of Grania <clears throat> for the first time that night and she might be written about, but not, a, not by me, for only what my eye has seen and my heart has felt. 
interests me. A book about the turbulent life of Castle Cara would be merrily inventions. Xela ni seri kudikshi. I should be following in the tracks of other Mongshars de Camelot, Scots and Stevenson and their like, but modern Ireland. What of it? As a subject for artistic treatment. And noiselessly like a ghost, modern Ireland glided into my thoughts, ruinous and ancient Ireland, more so for she is clothed not only with the ruins of 13th century, but with the ruins of every succeeding century. In Ireland we have ruins of several centuries standing side by side from the 5th to the 18th, but the ruins of Castle Cara stand, the ruins of a modern house to which the chieftains of Castle Cara retired with briganded decline. And the life that was lived there, <coughs> excuse me, is evinced by the great stone fox standing in the middle of the courtyard. Was evinced for within the last few years, the fox and the two hounds of gigantic stature on either side of the gateway have been overthrown. When I was a small child, I used to go with my mother and governess to Castle Cara for goat's milk, and we picnicked in the great banqueting hall, overgrown with ivy. If ever the novel I am dreaming is written, Ruin and Weed shall be its title, Ruined Castles in a Weedy Country. In Ireland, men and women die without realising any of the qualities they bring into the world, and I remembered those I had known long ago, dimly and in fragments, as one remembers pictures, the colour of a young woman's hair, an old woman's stoop, a man's bulk, and then a group of peasants trooped past me, Mulhair, recognised by his stubby chin. Pat Plunkett by his voice, Carabin by his eyes, and these were followed by recollection of an old servant, Appleby, his unstarched collar, and the frock coat too large for him, which he wore always, and his covert dislike of the other servants in the house, especially the old housemaids. All these people have gone to their rest. They are all happily forgotten. No one ever thinks of them, but to me, they are clearer than they were in life, because the present changes so quickly that we are not aware of our life at the moment of living it. But the past never changes. It is like a long picture gallery. Many of the pictures are covered with grey cloths, as is usual in picture galleries, but we can uncover any picture we wish to see, and not infrequently a cloth will fall as if by magic, revealing a forgotten one, and it is often a clear in outline and as fresh in paint as a van der Meer. That night in Temple... In the temple I met a memory as tender in colour and outline as of Vandermeer in the National Gallery. It was at the end of a long summer's day five and twenty years ago and I first saw her among some ruins in the Dublin mountains and in her reappearance she seemed so startlingly like Ireland that I felt she formed part of the book I was dreaming and that nothing of the circumstances in which I found her could be changed or altered. My thoughts fastened on to her carrying me out of the temple back to Ireland to the time when the ravages of the Land League had recalled me from the Nouvelle Athens, a magnificent young Montmartrean with a blonde beard a la Capleau, trousers hanging wide over the foot and a hat so small that my sister had once mistaken it for her riding hat. And still in my Montmartre clothes I had come back from the West with a story in my head, which could only be written in some poetical spot, probably in one of the old houses among the Dublin mountains, and I had set out to look for one on a hot day in July, 
When the trees in Merrion Square seemed like painted trees, so still were they in the grey silence. The sparrows had ceased to twitter, the carmen spat without speaking, too weary to solicit my fare, and the horses continued to doze on the bridles. Even the red brick, I said, seems to weary in the heat. Too hot a day for walking, but I must walk if I am to sleep tonight. My way led through Stephen's Green and the long decay of Dublin that began with the Union Inch. Engaged my thoughts and I fared, sighing for the old-time mansions that had been turned into colleges and presbyteries. There were lodging houses in Harcourt Street and beyond Harcourt Street the town dwindled. (coughs) Excuse me. First into small shops, then into shabby genteel villas at Terrenture. I was among cottages and within sight of purple hills, and when the daughter was crossed at the end of the village street, a great wall began high as a prison wall. It might well have been mistaken for one, but the trees told it was a park wall, and the great ornamental gateway was a pleasant object. It came into sight suddenly, a great pointed edifice finely designed, and after admiring it I wandered on, crossing on an old grey bridge. The dotter again, I said, and the beautiful green country unfolded, a little melancholy for lack of light and shade, for lack, I added, of a ray to gild the fields, a beautiful country failing, falling into ruin, the beauty of neglect, yet there is none in thrift. My eyes followed the long herds, wandering knee-deep in succulent herbage, and I remembered that every other country I had seen was spoiled more or less by human beings, but this country was nearly empty, only an occasional herdsman to remind me of myself in this drift of ruined suburb, with a wistful line of mountains enclosing it and one road curving among the hills, and everywhere high walls, parks, in the centre of which stand stately 18th century mansions. How the 18th century sought privacy, I said, and I walked on dreaming of the lives that were lived in those sequestered domains. No road ever wound so beautifully. Ah, sorry. No road ever wound so beautifully. I cried, and there are no cottages, only an occasional ruin to make the road attractive. How much more attractive is it is now, redeemed from its humanities, large families flowing over doorways, probably in and out of cesspools. I had seen such cottages in the west and had wished them in ruins, for ruins are wistful, especially when a foxglove finds root hold in the crannies and tall grasses flourish round the doorway, and withdrawing my eyes from the pretty cottage, I admired the spotted shade and the road itself now twisting abruptly, now winding leisurely up the ro- up the hill. Among woods ascending on my left and descending on my right, but what seemed most wonderful of all was the view that accompanied the road, glimpses of a great plain showing between comely trees shooting out of the hillside, a dim green plain divided by hedges traversed by long herds and enclosed, if I remember rightly, by a line of low grey hills far ever so far away. All the same, the road ascends very steeply, I growled, beginning the doubt of veracity of the agent who had informed me that a house existed in the neighbourhood, in the neighbourhood, I repeated, for the word appeared singularly inappropriate in the solitude, he should have said. A little higher up in the hills, a chance herdsman offered me some goat's milk, but it was like drinking camembert cheese, and the least epicurean amongst us would prefer his milk and cheese separate. He had no other, and in answer to my question regarding a house to let, 
said there was one a mile up the road, Mount Venus. Mount Venus, who may have given it that name? The question brought all this stupidity into his face, and after a short talk with him about his goats, I said I must be getting on to the Mount Venus. It would be no more than a mile. Nothing in Ireland lasts long except the miles, and the last mile to Mount Venus is the longest mile in Ireland, and the road is the steepest. It wound past another ruined cottage, and then a gateway appeared, heavy wrought iron gates hanging between great stone pillars, the drive ascending through lonely grasslands and with no house in view. For... The house lay on the farther side of the hill, a grove of beech trees, reserving it as a surprise for the visitor. A more beautiful grove I may never have seen, some two hundred years old, and the house as old as it, a long house built with picturesque chimney stacks, well placed at each end, a resolute house emphatic as an oath, with great steps before the door, and each made out of a single stone, a house at which one knocks timidly, lest Mastiff should rush out, eager for the strangling. But no fierce voices answered my knocking, only a vague echo. Maybe I'll find somebody in the back premises. And wandering through a gateway, I came upon many ruins of barns and byres, and upon a heap of stones probably once used for the crushing of apples. No cow in the byre, nor pony in the stable, nor dog in the kennel, nor pig in the sty, nor gaunt Irish fowl stalking about what seemed to be the kitchen door. An empty dove cot hung on the wall above it, Mount Venus without doves, I said, and as no one came to my knocking, I wandered back to the front of the house to enjoy the view of the sea and the line of the shore, drawn as beautifully as if Corot had drawn it. Dublin City appeared in the distance as mere murky mass, with here and there a building faintly indicated. Nearer still the suburbs came trickling into the fields, the very fields in which I had seen herds of cattle feeding. Besides the beech woods, there was the great yew hedge, hundreds of years old, and a walled garden at the end of it, a little lower down the shelving hillside, and pulling a thorn bush out of the gateway, I passed into a little wilderness of vagrant grasses and goats. A scheme for the restoration of Mount Venus started up in my mind for about £2,000. I should live in the most beautiful place in the world. The temple church cannot compare with trees, nor Mount Venus with Windsor, a trifle no doubt in the world of art, but what a delicious trifle. My dream died suddenly in the reflection that one country house is generally enough. <clears throat> for an Irish landlord, and I walked, seeking for a man who would spend £2,000 on Mount Venus, thereby giving me a house for which I would repay by dedicating all the books I should write, inspired by the lovely lines of Howth afloat between sea and sky. Men speculate in racehorses and hounds, yachts and Scottish moors. Why is it there is no one who would restore Mount Venus sufficiently for the summer months? Long enough for me to write my books and to acquire a permanent memory of a beautiful thing which the earth is claiming rapidly and which in a few years will pass away. By standing on some loose stones it was possible to look into the first floor rooms and I could see marble chimney pieces set in a long room up and down which I could walk while arranging my ideas and when ideas failed me I could suckle my imagination on the view. This is the house I'm in search of and there seems to be enough furniture for my wants. 
I'll return tomorrow, but my pleasure will be lost if I have to wait till tomorrow. Somebody must be here. I'll try again. The silence that answered my knocking strengthened my determination to see Mount Venus that night, and I returned to my empty yard and peeped and pried through all the outhouses, discovering at last a pail of newly peeled potatoes. There must be somebody about, and I waited, peeling the potatoes that remained unpeeled to pass the time. I'm afraid I'm wasting your potatoes, I said to the woman who appeared in the doorway, a peasant woman wearing a rough, dark grey petticoat and heavy boots, men's boots. They were almost the first thing I noticed. Just the woman who I expected would come, the caretaker. She spoke with her head turned aside, showing a thin, well-cut face with a shapely forehead, iron grey hair, a nose, long and thin, with fine nostrils and a mouth, a pretty line, I think. But that is all I can say about her, for when I try to remember more, I see the, seem to lose sight of her. Thank God. You've come to see the house. She stopped and looked at me. Is there any reason why I shouldn't see it? No, there's no reason why you shouldn't. If you'll wait a minute, I'll fetch the king. She doesn't speak like a caretaker, I thought, nor look like one. Is it a lease or the house you'd like, or do you wish only to hire it for the season, sir? Only for the season, I said. It is to be let furnished? There's not much furniture, but sufficient. So long as there are beds and a table to ride upon and a few chairs. Yes, there's that. And more than that, she answered, smiling. This is the kitchen, and she showed me into the vast stone room, and the passages leading from the kitchen were wide and high and built in stone. The walls seemed of great thickness, and when the, we came to the staircase, she said, Mind you don't slip. The stairs are very slippery, but can easily be put right. The stonemason will only have to run his chisel over them. I'm more interested in the rooms in which I am to live myself if I take the house. These are the drawing rooms, she said, and drew my attention to the chimney piece. It's very beautiful, I answered, turning from the party-coloured marbles to the pictures. All the ordinary subjects of the pictorial art lined the walls, but I passed on without noticing any. So poor and provincial was the painting until I came suddenly upon the portrait of a young girl. The painting was hardly better than any I had already seen, but her natural gracefulness transpired in classical folds as she stood leaning on her bow, a Diana of the forties, looking across the greenswood, waiting to hear if the arrow had reached its mark. Into what kind of old age has she drifted, I asked myself, and the recollection of the thin, clear-cut, eager face brought me back again to the portrait and forgetful of the woman I had found in the outhouse peeling potatoes for her dinner, I studied her face, certain that I had seen it before, but where? Several generations seemed to be on these walls. I asked the caretaker if she knew anything about the people who had lived in the house. It was built about 200 years ago, I should say, and we wandered into another room. I should like to hear something about the girl whose portrait I've been looking at. There's nothing to conceal, no story. There's nothing in her story that anyone needs to be ashamed of, but why do you ask? And the manner in which she put the question still further excited my curiosity, because it seems to me that I've seen that face before. Yes, she answered, you have the portrait in the next room is my portrait, as I was forty years ago, but I didn't think that anyone would see the likeness. Your portrait, I answered abruptly, yes, I can see the likeness. And I heard her say under her breath that she had been through a great deal of trouble, and her face was again turned from me, as she walked into another room. But do you wish to take the house, sir? If not, in some ways it would suit me well enough. I'll write and let you know. And your portrait I shall always remember, I added. 
thinking to please her, but seeing that my remark failed to do so, I spoke of the water supply, and she told me that there was a well, an excellent spring only. The cattle went there to drink, but it would be easy to put an iron fence around it. And now, if you'll excuse me, it's my dinner time. I let her go and wondered whither she had advised me to the Cromlech, Krum- one of the grandest in Ireland. Jesus, we're like not even halfway through this chapter. Um, all right, we'll pause there, wherever we are. Cromlet. Uh, where are we? What the hell? I lost my spot. Cromlet. Cromlet. Cromlech. All right, um... Thanks for listening, I guess, and um, see you tomorrow.